You are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD. Hello and welcome to the latest in the series of digital conversations organised by the Office of the Chief Economist in the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and our Trade Facilitation Programme. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm Managing Director of Communications at the EBRD. Uh, we're back after our summer break, continuing to examine the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on the global economy. Today, we discuss trade finance and its role in overcoming the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. Broken supply chains, closed off borders, broken trade routes, the COVID-19 crisis has hit trading really hard. What lessons have we learned? How can we re-energize world trade in order to stimulate the wider economic recovery? What role does trade finance play in all of that? What instruments do we have at hand to help build trade resilience? Well, today I'm joined by our distinguished experts, Mark Obwines, the councillor in the World Trade Organization, Shannon Manders is the editorial director at Global Trade Review, and uh, the EBRD chief economist, Beata Yavorchik, is also with us. She's also a professor of economics at Oxford. A few housekeeping rules, uh, as we always have. This event is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page, as well as via Zoom. Facebook page uh, viewers, by the way, post your questions in the comments section. Uh, before we start our discussion, a few pointers for those of you joining us on Zoom. Please make sure you mute yourself. I heard a bit of noise in the background as we were going along, so please make sure you mute yourself. Probably after all these months of actually working remotely and virtually, you're probably used to people saying that, so please do it. Keep your video off. You can put questions to the panel in the chat box and we'll pick them up from there. Uh, introduce yourself, by the way, when you post your question. We'd like to know who you are and uh, we'll take your questions towards the end of the programme. But before we begin our discussion, we've got a special guest, uh, the EBRD's acting president, Jürgen Richtering. He's going to share his thoughts on the importance of trade finance. Jürgen. Thank you, Jonathan. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Very pleased to open this EBRD webinar on the role of trade finance during the coronavirus pandemic and its aftermath. The flow of trade is a key element of the global supply of goods. Some would say the engine of the global economy. But trade does not magically happen. And in many markets, the role of trade finance is essential for the function facilitation of trade flows. If trade is the engine of the economy, then trade finance is the fuel for this engine. Quite simply, insufficient supply of trade finance would threaten to compromise otherwise viable trade transactions. COVID has now alleviated the importance of trade finance, given the need for many countries to access basic requirements as well as vital goods, including medical supplies. This is why EBRD has prioritized trade finance as one of the pillars of our response to the COVID-19 crisis. Ladies and gentlemen, as we all know, COVID has not gone away. After some initial hopeful signs, we are now witnessing a resurgence in infection rates in many countries. Governments are working hard to contain the spread of the virus and avoid a second wave. The effects have already been evident on trade, but this means that the depth of crisis is still an unknown. And as such, tackling the trade finance question is vital as well as timely. EBRD is active in 38 economies spanning three continents. Our mandate is to support the transition 
to well-functioning and resilient market economies. And our focus is on private sector support and the building of green economies. This cannot be done without functioning trade finance. Our trade facilitation program goes back to 1999 and has borne witness to a number of political and financial crises. But ladies and gentlemen, it is no exaggeration to say that never has this program and what it can offer been more important. In times of uncertainty, demand for trade finance shoots up. So I'm proud to report that we've done our part to keep international trade flowing. In the first half of 2020 alone, the EBRD has financed over 1,000 trade transactions with a record turnover of close to 2 billion euros. Just two of the many examples. The EBRD extended tenors of its guarantees in support of imports of fast-moving consumer goods into Ukraine from Turkey and of foodstuffs from Kazakhstan to Uzbekistan, where shipments had been delayed due to the coronavirus outbreak. And we supported imports of medical supplies into Lebanon from Italy and medical equipment into Greece from Germany. So EBRD trade finance kept the wheels of the real economy turning. This we were able to do because of our extensive global network of over 100 issuing banks in our 38 countries and over 800 confirming banks across the world, including developed countries outside our region, such as Germany, Italy, Austria, and the US. But ladies and gentlemen, COVID is not the only element of trade. We could read again in today's FT Financial Times that investment flows between China and the US fell to their lowest level in almost a decade. As the coronavirus ends political tensions, cast a shadow of a cross-border activity. We live at a time of extraordinary international tensions, and we have seen a return to trade wars. But this, it's my strong belief, will eventually benefit no one. Despite the coronavirus pandemic, the global economy remains a complex system with a plethora of connections and mutual interdependencies. One lesson of the crisis is to make these links more resilient and not to cut them. One of the most important priorities to making global trade more resilient is strengthening the institutional framework. A strong economy needs sound rules and respected independent institution. The EBRD is a long-standing partner, I actually would say friend, of the World Trade Organization. And we are particularly pleased to welcome Mark Aubin here, who is responsible for the WTO's trade and finance agenda at our event today. A very warm welcome to all of you, and thank you again for joining us at this undoubtedly interesting event. Thank you very much, and over to you again, Jonathan. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Jürgen, for setting the scene there on uh, you know, many challenges, not just a single challenge, but the many challenges to global uh, trade as we try to explore in the next hour or so the solutions uh, and what can be done. 
Uh, Beata Javorczyk, uh, I know you've also got your own uh, observations on trade during the time of COVID. Perhaps you'd share those with us now. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, let me start with the basics. International trade transactions are more risky than domestic trade. Goods travel longer distances, so the time between when the goods leave and when they arrive is much longer. Um, the trading parties often speak different languages. They are subject to different laws and regulations. And I'm sure you've heard of many situations where things have gone wrong. I remember being in Jakarta talking to a local businesswoman who sent a shipment to one of the Balkan countries never to see the payment. And she explained to me, well, it cost a lot of money to fly from Jakarta to Europe. I don't speak the language. There isn't even an Indonesian embassy in that particular country. So exporters face the risk of non-payment. Importers face the risk that if they prepay for goods, they will never see the shipment. But fortunately, there is a solution. They can purchase a trade finance instrument, a letter of credit, which will give insurance to both parties that they will receive the goods and receive the payments. And the ability to insure a shipment makes such a shipment more resilient to shocks. In times of COVID, when uncertainty has shot up, what we have seen was greater resilience of insured payments, insured shipments. I've looked at Turkish statistics and overall Turkish exports in March were 25% down relative to their historical average. But if you disaggregated them by the type of payment method used, you would see that there was no decline in export flows backed by letters of credit. So trade finance matters for resilience. Now, trade finance did not receive a lot of attention really until the last, uh, the global financial crisis, when everybody realized that times of uncertainty means greater demand for insurance. But during the financial crisis, the supply of letters of credit and other instruments went down. And according to some estimates, 10% of the global trade collapse at that time was due to the inability to ensure trade shipments. Now, what about now going forward? Um, we've heard lots of discussions about reshaping of global value chains, about increasing their resilience. This means finding new suppliers, diversifying supplier base. But finding new suppliers means doing business with a party whom you do not know. Greater risk and greater risk again increases demand for trade finance. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Beata. Um, so let's move on. Perhaps it's useful now to, to paint a picture of where we are or where we think we might be. We've got obviously a global economic downturn caused by the coronavirus all sorts of trade tensions, as we said, you know, that how, how does that really affect where we stand right now in international trade? Uh, I'd like to turn to our two guests, Mark Aubuin of the World Trade Organization, Shannon as well, uh, Manders from the uh, Global Trade Review. Mark, just, just, I think it's worth setting the scene as well as to where you think global trade is right now at this moment. 
greetings from Geneva. Um, well, World Trade is, uh, you know, we, when we came up with our forecast uh, a few months ago, we said that, you know, like most international organizations, we would have a uh, scenario, a sort of dark scenario, where we were uh, foreseeing a reduction of trade about 30%, and then one uh, which was uh, less dark, uh, where the um, headline number was a minus 13%. We are more on, in that uh, smaller bracket, so at the present moment, we're down uh, globally about uh, minus 10, minus 11%, which means that if international trade uh, in goods uh, in 2019, we're about $20 uh, trillion in flow. Um, then we've lost about $2 trillion in trade. Um, and uh, of course, this is a reduction in demand for trade finance, because as Beata very nicely explained, um, trade finance is the oil of trade. Sometimes it's even forgotten that it exists, but it's necessary to keep uh, goods flowing. With a reduced demand, you would expect that uh, the situation of trade finance would actually uh, improve, right? But in fact, this is quite the opposite. Uh, trade finance is supplied by financial institutions. It's a cross-border activities which carries risk. And when there is a, a shock, an economic shock of that kind, uh, what 2008-2009 uh, has um, taught us is that uh, financial institutions, the very large ones, tend to retrench and to uh, select their risk. There is a so-called flight to quality, which means that essentially serve their clients first and they do not engage into third party operation, which means they provide, they are less international than they were. And we have seen this uh, very much so from the very onset of the crisis, which is um, uh, those uh, countries where the perception of risk was the highest operation uh, in terms of uh, providing credit where uh, there could be accumulation of uh, worsened credit risk that is corporate risk and sovereign risk um, those countries were being cut off uh, from international credit lines in other words when they wanted to import covid related uh, material and equipment uh, they could not get letters of confirm uh, letters of credit confirmed by international banks uh, likewise, when they wanted to export, they could not get pre-export finance, which means that they could not be paid upon exports to finance the essential goods and commodities they normally uh, export, which is providing them in turn for the foreign exchange that they need to buy the COVID-related material. And hence, then you can see already the link between the availability of trade finance and the balance of payment situation of many countries. I remind you that about 100 countries have fallen into balance of payments difficulties. And the possibility to actually export is very much linked to the possibility for the exporters to be paid upon shipments. There are very few exporters would accept that, uh, to leave their goods uh, not being paid. They want to be paid upon shipment and trade finance provide for that guarantee. So that's one thing, reduce demand, but at the same time, reduce supply by the financial system. And typically because of the self-selection effect, what we have seen in 2008 has come up even further on in 2020, which is a cutting down of credit lines, first on these developed countries. I mean, that was almost immediate. That's why multilateral development banks has immediately uh, reopened their safety net, trade finance safety net, so to allow at least for the minimum 
livelihood based um, um, uh, uh, goods to flow. And, um, and, and the second thing now, which is more worrying, is that we are getting into a second stage whereby uh, demand for trade is picking up back again. Um, there is, of course, a pickup in demand for trade finance, and some of the banks are meeting that demand, but some of the banks have permanently closed um, their, their, let's say, windows uh, of, of supply, um, and that is starting to affect middle-income countries. So, for example, we have you in the BRD would know that uh, Egypt, when it comes to try to importing grain uh, for doing a central stockpiling or, or Ukraine to buy energy uh, goods, uh, would not find any counterparty uh, to, uh, to finance its letters of credit or at the present moment. So there is, there is here an increased uh, um, aversion to risk by international mm -hmm. banks, which may just further increase uh, the shortages in trade finance. All right, thank you, Mark. We'll dissect some of those points actually as we go along, especially that aversion to risk and what that means for trade. Uh, Shannon Manders, uh, give us your picture, paint a picture for us of where you see the world right now at this point in 2020. Thanks, Jonathan. And I guess because um, GTR is a trade finance publication, I'll start there. So I definitely think that the pandemic has underscored the importance of trade finance and supply chain finance, so working capital optimization techniques. And I think that that importance is only going to grow, as Mark says, we start seeing demand return globally. And also as the various um, pandemic-related support packages that various governments around the world have been rolling out over the last sort of eight, nine months as they start um, being tapered off and, and closed down altogether. Um, so what we're hearing from some people is that trade finance has responded well in this crisis um, in terms of um, supporting importers and exporters in their ability to um, manage risk, to optimize and free up their working capital. And also, um, as Beata was saying, as a, you know, to ensure that their supply chains properly function in a period of incredible and extreme stress. Um, so the points that I wanted to make really is that I think that the, the core drivers of change that companies have been thinking about um, in terms of their cross-border business um, before the pandemic, I think that they still continue but I think that what the pandemic has potentially done is just accelerate um, these. So there's, there's a couple of them that I'll touch on very briefly. Um, the one is, as Beata mentioned, um, the shifting of supply chains. Now, this is not a new phenomenon by any chance. It's something that we've been seeing for um, a number of years. But I recently spoke to an economist who told me that we're going to see um, more changes in supply chains in the next two years than we've seen in the last 20 years. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but yeah, for some time we've seen, um, we've seen companies realize their over-reliance on countries like China as you know, the factory of the world and really thinking about how they can diversify their supply chains and incorporate these so-called China plus one strategies and looking to other um, economies in Asia as they do that. Um, ESG and sustainability, potentially something we'll come on onto a little bit later today, are also playing into that conversation that companies are having with regards to their supply chain. Um, 
The second point is the increasing demand for supply chain finance. Um, and I think what's really happened is that um, companies, so buyers and suppliers have realized that they can use supply chain finance, not just to unlock liquidity in their supply chains, but also to drive greater certainty into and financial risk out of their supply chain. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely see that, uh, you know, we're hearing from banks on a, on a regular basis that they're seeing increasing demand for supply chain finance. And we are hearing exactly the same thing from um, these third party supply chain finance platforms. Buyers and, and suppliers are looking to get involved in these supply chain programs that these guys run. Um, the other point about supply chain finance, just very briefly, is that it's one thing to get liquidity into um, the large corporates, which, as far as I understand, didn't seem to be a problem during this pandemic. But it's another thing entirely to be able to get that liquidity down to the lower tiers, the so-called um, the long tail of suppliers. And I think that's where supply chain finance really comes into its own and why we're seeing this um, growing um, adoption of it. And then maybe just the a final point from me before passing back to you, Jonathan, is um, the digitalization of trade flows. Now, for me, this is potentially the most meaningful and the most exciting sort of byproduct of the current pandemic uh, is this renewed optimism for um, driving digitalization and automation into what's an incredibly archaic industry. Trade finance is paper-based, it's manual, and that's been a problem in this pandemic. Um, so in the same way that, you know, when borders shut down and goods could not be moved, so the, the actual physical supply chains could not take place, the same happened with the financial supply chains around trade finance. Because of the fact that we're relying on paper, we're relying on things like wet signatures and corporate stamps, um, and essentially, you know, that, that couldn't take place. So solutions had to be found. Um, and I think what could be quite interesting is whether these sort of quick fix solutions that have been developed will in fact um, be converted into long-term structural solutions. Um, and then just a final point on digitalization is that, you know, we've been talking about it for many, many years and really it's not something that has been held up because of a lack of willingness on the behalf of um, companies and financiers to digitalize. That's not the issue at all. It's, it's because um, like Beata was saying early on, we're dealing with incredibly complex supply chains all around the world um, in various jurisdictions, each of which have their own um, rules and practices and standards. Um, but it's really cool, I think, now um, in the current context to see that there's a, a, a significant drive behind that. Um, back to you, Jonathan. Thank you very much indeed, Shannon. Yes, that was very interesting, especially the question of what will endure, actually, in terms of positive changes that may come out of this. Uh, we'll be hearing from you a bit later on as well. Uh, we have been running, by the way, some polls, uh, and I'd like to share one with you. We've done these polls jointly uh, with the World Trade Organization. One question we asked via uh, Twitter and LinkedIn, we asked, what is the expected effect of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic on world merchandise trade in 2020? Now, you told us in your responses the most popular response 
which was 47% on Twitter, 47% of you on Twitter thought this, 51% on LinkedIn. The most popular response was that there would be a 5% decline in merchandise trade in 2020 under optimistic scenarios and a 15% decline under pessimistic scenarios, quite a range there. Uh, the second most uh, popular response uh, was that there would be a 13% decline under optimistic scenarios and a 32% decline under pessimistic scenarios. We'll share some more of those poll results as we go along. Um, let's go back to some of the obstacles which are there to trade finance. Beata, the EBRD has done uh, bank surveys in our countries of operation. What do they show? Well, trade finance is a very concentrated business, right? So if you look at the US market, 90% of trade finance is provided by just five US banks. If you look at Italy, a median Italian firm that purchases such services is served by just one bank. So what our surveys have echoed the conclusions of a recent report put out by the WTO and IFC, which talked about a fifth of global corresponding banking relationships being broken down. Right? These relationships um, disappeared over a decade. Um, in our survey, we looked at banks that are well-connected, banks that have more than 20, per, 20 other corresponding uh, that had 20 corresponding banks, about half, half of such banks were in our survey, half of respondents were so well connected. In the, the more, most recent edition of the survey, this number went to 40%. So there is a decline in the number of banks that have a lot of corresponding bank relationships. We also have seen some geographic diversification so before trade finance landscape, according to our surveys, was dominated by American and German players. Now their share seems to be going down. Instead, we see Russia and Austrian banks uh, emerging. Now, what is happening here? What's driving that? Two thirds of respondents said that a corresponding banking relationship does not generate enough business to justify due diligence costs. And about, about half of respondents said that it's explicitly anti-money laundering regulation and regulation pertaining to combating the financing of terrorism that is onerous enough um, to basically lead to these relationships being cut off. And, and that's a problem because, you know, as these relationships disappear, many countries, many emerging markets find themselves um, in difficulties when it comes to getting trade finance. Thank you, Beata. Mark, you spoke a few minutes ago about some of these obstacles and you talked about risk aversion, for example, all sorts of uh, different things. I wonder whether you think a lot of these are going to be have a long duration or whether you think they're sudden shocks and they will disappear from the system relatively swiftly. How do you see that balance? No, at each uh, stage of these shocks, you see structural change. And uh, what has happened after the great financial crisis, uh, just said by Beata, um, 
there has been a reconsideration by very global banks of their network in in the light of new regulation that were more demanding as to uh, um, as to how much could they control in terms of financial transparency, how much could they control their network. And the, the point is that uh, uh, the trade finance market has been structured uh, historically around a number of um, internationally active banks, also ex-colonial banks that were very active in trade over the century. And now uh, the country where they emanate, um, uh, where emanate these banks have lost market share in trade, which means that their own customers represent less. And therefore, um, these banks have overgrown that network relative to what is needed by their core clients now. And when they refocus towards their core clients, then they have an oversized uh, network which they want after the crisis to to reduce for cost reason or for for other reasons for manageability reason in terms of uh, of the regulation so who has actually gained market share and those who have gained market share are twofold first it's developing countries banks uh, so we have less global banks and we have more regional banks. Uh, banks in Asia have gained market share. Now they are gaining experience, but it takes many, many years before you develop a kind of international network that those who have been um, withdrawing uh, have been building over um, decades. So that's one area that creates uh, at least temporary shortages. The other uh, um, uh, element for change in, in the structure of the market has been the shift, as was said by Shannon, from a bank-based um, uh, supply of, of, of uh, trade finance to enterprise-based trade finance that was, um, so intercompany lending, uh, one company extending a buyer's credit or a seller's credit, and that would be uh, insured by an export credit agency or a private insurer, which have uh, 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 taken a big dent into the market, or um, if you have a receivable um, uh, a payment to be coming, then you would discount it uh, against a factor company. I mean, at the end of the day, many of these techniques end up being um, uh, factored in by the banks. I mean, the final risk taker would be a bank. But the point is, at each stage of a crisis, or at least after a crisis, you have some restructuring of the market. And the bigger point I would like to make uh, to finish off is, is the following. Structurally, over the past 10 or 15 years, uh, the, um, there has been indeed a recalibration of supply chains, particularly in the low uh, on the labor intensive part of, of markets, of supply chains, which means that, for example, China is doing less and less of labor intensive uh, goods. Uh, and then uh, some of these goods have gone uh, for production into Bangladesh, into Myanmar, into, uh, 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 into other countries, which is good for globalization. But the capacity of the financial sector of these countries to absorb um, exports or even imports, because it's often outward oriented um, uh, production systems, um, uh, to absorb uh, all this uh, demand for finance is lower uh, than the financial, the local financial capacity to do so. In other words, the financial systems of Cambodia or, or Myanmar or Bangladesh is not able to absorb all these new exports and imports. Think about a country that would 
export 50% of its GDP, then it would normally have 50% of its loan to GDP uh, to, uh, to be allocated for trade finance. That is not the case in those countries. So who's taking the slack? And so that's the big question why we have uh, trade finance shortages, uh, structural trade finance shortages. And my point is, after a crisis of this kind, we may see the shortages as we have less bigger banks in the markets to grow at least temporarily until some regional banks take on the market share. Okay, now that's it. just very quickly, actually, before I come to Shannon, Mark, there's an interesting point there. So do you think it's possible to build more capacity in these local markets that currently don't have it? Of course, that's what we actually, I mean, we are trying to contribute to that as an international organization because we are doing a lot of technical assistance. One of the beauties of the EBRD, and I must say they have been a precursor into it, is that uh, not only they are providing emergency finance like they, they are doing now, but they are training uh, in their countries of operation domestic banks. Uh, in, they are actually building entire uh, trade finance departments of banks. They have been doing that in Central Europe and Eastern Europe very effectively. So in a way now that these banks are structuring banks in their area of operation. I give you the banks in Georgia, for example, have become for um, uh, strongholds of trade finance in their area now that they can do it because it takes um, technical skills and, and credit management, credit risk management skills to do trade finance. I think this is one of the uh, discussion we can have for the future, how to build capacity. It's not only having the savings rate to turn into loans, uh, so that is a macroeconomic uh, aspect, but there is a technical element in there uh, that requires uh, capacity building. Thank you very much indeed for the moment, Mark. Uh, Shannon Manders, we're talking about obstacles here. Uh, what are you hearing from trade bodies, uh, international chambers of commerce, people like that? Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. Um, yeah, maybe I could start off by just talking about, like, you know, quantifying the issue that we're um, that we're dealing with at the moment. So, the International Chamber of Commerce, the ICC, they put out a report um, towards the start of this year. Um, that warned that as much as 1.9 to 5 trillion US dollars of trade credits market capacity was, is going to be needed to return trade volumes back to 2019 levels, which is obviously um, massive. So this is to ensure, ensure this V-shaped reco recovery that we're, we're talking about um, all the time. Um, so in its report, it says that the uncertainties created by the pandemic is gonna result in an increased need for trade finance, which we know over the medium term. Um, but what they say is that without, you know, rapid interventions that Mark was talking about, um, the market may not be able to meet this demand. Um, and interestingly, of that sort of 1.9 to 5 trillion US dollars, they say that 0.8 to 1.9 of that, of that required capacity is bank intermediated the bank intermediated market alone so this is talking letters of credit and um, bank guarantees etc um, and yeah I guess if I could um, you know we we heard from John Denton who's the Secretary General of the ICC and if I can just quote him very briefly um, to give you a, an insight into the significance thereof he says the impacts of COVID-19 could compound long-standing gaps in the provision of trade finance 
potentially leading to a chronic shortage of the very credit that will be needed to power a rapid economic rebound. Now, we also know that globally, unfinanced trade finance requests, um, which the Asian Development Bank puts at about 1.5 trillion US dollars, um, has remained at those levels stubbornly over the last few years. So bearing in mind what the ICC has said, the AB, ADB has not changed its, um, as far as I know, has not changed its, its figures in that regard. It's going to be interesting to see how the, how the two can kind of meet. Anecdotally, however, um, you know, we speak to banks and companies on a pretty regular basis. And what we're hearing from a lot of banks over the course of just the last few weeks is that they are indeed um, telling us that traditional trade finance instruments, such as laces of credit, are um, faring well again after having dropped off um, in, at the start of the year uh, with the outbreak in line with um, you know, the economic activity um, slump. Um, so for example, we ran a report just a couple of weeks ago um, about HSBC in, in Asia, who were telling us that their core trade finance products, so this is again, letters of credit, um, had returned to 2019 levels. Um, the order sizes had not seen as much of a resurgence. So that's obviously suggesting that there's still this current um, volatile economic um, backdrop um, weighing on buying decisions. But, but certainly um, that's been some cause for, for optimism. Um, but yeah, interesting to, to, to contrast um, what we're hearing on the ground and, and what we're hearing from the trade associations. Yeah, thank you very much, Shannon. Actually, and interesting as well, when you talked just there about the global trade finance gap. That was one of the questions, by the way, we put out on our poll. Uh, we, we asked, uh, trade finance is one of the top three export obstacles for half of the world's countries. What is the current global trade finance gap? Uh, and we gave various possibilities, $15 billion, $150 billion, $1.5 trillion, uh, $10 trillion. We put that question out via Twitter and LinkedIn. And the poll went 37.7% uh, of Twitter, the largest number uh, went for one and a half trillion dollars. Uh, and on LinkedIn, 57% went for that figure. So there we are. One other poll, which I think might lead us into our next line of questioning. According to the uh, latest WTO report on trade in critical medical products during the ongoing pandemic, the average applied tariff for hand soap uh, as a personal protective product is 17%. Some WTO members apply tariffs as high as 65%. But which of the economies where the EBRD invests from among the WTO members has the highest average applied tariff for the import of personal protective products? Uh, and uh, the numbers we asked uh, actually about uh, Armenia and Egypt and Tajikistan and Montenegro. The one that uh, has the highest, actually, uh, tariffs is Egypt. That's 27.6%. Uh, and a third of our Twitter respondents uh, got that right and thought that was correct. Some quite high tariffs, uh, which, uh, you know, are very, very evident on here. I'm just wondering, Beata, you know, this question, it's quite surprising in a major pandemic, isn't it? The tariffs remain high on some of the most important goods during this pandemic. It is surprising, though some countries did uh, suspend import tariffs temporarily as they were trying to import these goods. Um, now, I would, you know, you would think that after a pandemic, countries would want to drop tariffs on essential products. Mm. 
but I fear that the opposite may be happening, that in the name of, of resilience, in the name of creating own capacity, countries may actually increase tariffs. And I think that would be detrimental because, you know, as every country tries to produce supplies on their own, you know, trying to increase one's resilience will increase global vulnerability. So I think that would be a very misguided policy and hopefully it will not happen. Let me pick up actually with Mark that point because I mean that is interesting isn't it one would have been one would have expected a drop in tariffs because countries need PP but this point that maybe they're doing it deliberately to try to build up domestic capacity is an interesting one. Um, what, what you've been saying about uh, tariff is, uh, is indeed uh, in the publication, but, uh, and it's been a surprise to a lot when, uh, when they read it, but uh, I, I concur with uh, Beata, in a period of emergency, uh, a lot of countries have uh, lifted tariff uh, in order to allow for, for goods to, uh, to come in and, and to uh, allow for relief for the population. The other thing is that at the very beginning of the crisis, a lot of countries, we actually had 54 of them, have uh, taken their right to uh, uh, raise export restrictions uh, to uh, preserve the stocks of some of these uh, equipment. Um, and so there have been a number of uh, measures that have created uh, um, a lot of discussion, but which have been waived uh, and, and, and removed ever since. I think under uh, everyone's uh, understanding that no one is self-sufficient almost in nothing. I mean, it goes from food to uh, medical equipment and other equipment. Now, there may be strategic thinking about how to establish a domestic supply chain in a particular area so that it doesn't happen again. But the point is, I think the realization um, or that, um, that no one was self-sufficient. Uh, we have, for example, uh, done within these uh, series of COVID publication, uh, a screening of uh, COVID-related uh, goods uh, um, supply chains. And for example, you would see, and you would expect, by the way, that uh, the high-end uh, technology countries are producing the respirators, the uh, high-technology machine for emergency uh, care of people. And then you would have middle-income countries like Malaysia doing the gloves and then uh, other countries doing the mask and so on. So you would expect that in a sort of a comparative advantage um, uh, uh, allocation um, uh, of, of countries. Um, and I think that uh, remains very much the case. I mean, we do have natural, ex I mean, uh, structural exporters of certain goods and, and structural importers of other goods. And, um, and, and so is in other supply chains. Um, there has been a realization also, for example, in the food area, that if, if everyone, there was enough food for everyone. I mean, that was clearly the market's um, uh, assessment by the FAO, by the WTO and others, and that uh, an increased number of export controls and other controls to trade would actually create uh, the, the shortages that do not exist normally on the market. So it was a fairly much of a pro-trade um, pro conclusion that everybody drew. Uh, so if, if you allow me uh, that positive message is that if anything that has been approved by the crisis is that we were all interdependent 
uh, on a lot of things. Now, whether some country want to change the situation for particular strategic goods is, is a matter that remains to be, um, uh, to be discussed uh, internally in the WTO, but, um, but uh, I'll stop there, maybe uh, to allow for the discussion. Okay, I'm all for allowing for positive messages in these challenging times, so uh, definitely. Shannon, you seem to be indicating you want to say something. Um, thanks, Jonathan. I, just two very quick points. I think it's so interesting that we're even having this discussion in the current crisis about trade. And I think that's indicative of the shifting, um, you know, the shifting focus, really. In previous crises, we were talking about monetary policy, whereas now the focus really is on, on trade finance, because um, as we know, the books have been written about this. Trade has been weaponized. It's no longer just about the economics thereof. It is about the politics and the strategy behind it. And I think, um, yeah, it certainly makes, certainly makes my job a whole lot more interesting. And then the second point that I just wanted to make very briefly is this, you know, this, this talk about protectionism and tariffs. Um, so just today, the HSBC and the Boston Consulting Group have put out a new report. Um, it's literally a report on that just went up on the GTL website before I logged into this call. Um, it talks about how protectionism and tariffs are going to cost the global economy as much as 10 um, trillion US dollars in GDP by 2025. I haven't had a chance to really go into the report just yet. But, um, I recommend people taking a look at it. All right, thank you, Shanna. That leads us very nicely on to something else I wanted to raise, actually, just before I do, just a reminder to our audience, of course, that you can post your questions, by the way, uh, either on Zoom or uh, Facebook Live uh, viewers. You can do it that way, uh, and we'll pick them up, and uh, maybe we'll ask some of them uh, towards the end of our program here today. Uh, so let's, let's pick up on what Shannon was saying there. Obviously, you know, the COVID crisis comes at a moment when there were many other issues in global trade. You know, the trade tensions have not got any easier these past few years or indeed the past few months during the COVID crisis. And I wonder how you disaggregate the impact of uh, things on trade finance. Beata. A very interesting question, Jonathan. So one of the impacts of, of, um, trade, of trade wars and all this uncertainty about trade policy is that it will push... Um, firms towards thinking more about resilience, right? You know, the famous from uh, just in time to just in case. Now, this means that they need to find new suppliers. And, and we know from the economic literature that it's pretty hard to become an exporter, right? So um, we know that it's more productive firms, firms that are larger, firms that have better technologies that can cross this threshold of being good enough to export. Exporters are actually a minority among firms in a country. So now finding these new suppliers um, may be challenging unless firms in those localities where you want to source from have access to finance because in order to improve yourself, in order um, to become more productive, you need to invest. So without maybe pre-export finance or without some sort of access um, to lending, this reshaping of global value chains will not be possible. Now, th there's also another aspect, you know, who will be disadvantaged, right? So 
On the one hand, uh, in our latest regional economic prospects, we talked about the opportunity reshaping of global value chains offers to the countries where we are active. Many of them produce similar goods as those that are exported uh, by China, and they have comparative advantage in that. But for local firms to export more, they need to have access to credit. If they don't have access to credit, it's, it's multinationals who can pick up the slack, scale up their operations. But what we have seen recently is a big drop in FDI flows. I mean, already, you know, FDI flows have not been very strong in recent years, but right now, uh, this year, there was a 40% drop. They are below the level of the trough we saw after the global financial crisis. So I'm not sure we can count on uh, foreign affiliates um, to create these new pockets of prosperity that will take advantage of the reshaping of global value chains in our countries of operations. Actually, and that is very different to some of the things we've seen in the past after past crises, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah. Mark, there's this question of, you know, how do you see then the impact of, of trade conflicts, which we've seen more and more on, on, on trade finance? Because, you know, you talk about risk aversion. There's no doubt the risks of providing trade finance, they do go up during times of uh, trade conflict. Uh, yes, but uh, the risk we're talking about right now is a commercial risk. As you land, you are not going to uh, get your money back because you do not know even whether the, the company, the counterparty uh, that you are dealing with is going to exist and is going to pay you mm. at the end of the day. So this is, we are really very much in, into, uh, at the present moment, uh, a little less about economic sanctions and a little more about uh, commercial risk, corporate risk plus the sovereign risk, which, which matters very much because some uh, countries are on uh, the verge of balance payment crisis and they are, of course, uh, they are looked at uh, differently by the international financial institutions that are supplying for, uh, trade finance. So, um, but, but coming back on, uh, on one element of, uh, of what was saying about the renationalization of supply chains, we are coming, we will be coming up in the uh, autumn uh, on, uh, with other reports uh, showing that actually we've been looking pretty hard at the reshoring in recent years and we have seen very little of it as a matter of fact and um, um, so that, that says something about also the uh, desire of firms to actually uh, uh, have a different um, uh, division of labor than they are actually doing it naturally. Um, and so the capacity of policymakers to change that is, um, is to be discussed, and particularly in an environment which we haven't discussed at all, in a, in a trade environment where electronic commerce have boomed. Uh, they have been a substitution during this period, and, uh, and it is a very important development from uh, physical goods, uh, or at least physically chipped goods to um, uh, to electronic commerce and electronic commerce is a game changer both for trade and uh, and uh, trade policy and also for trade finance uh, that in a negative sense because when you're doing electronic commerce i mean if you buy something online you would be paying cash in advance you have as as a buyer no 
trade finance available. The, uh, uh, the uh, uh, seller wants his money immediately uh, or the platform will ask you to pay right now without having you to see the goods and, and to verify the integrity of the goods. So that's a, a, another matter. So uh, reshoring of supply chain, we're not too sure about that. And if you're looking at where actually uh, in, in the COVID context, uh, let's say the most advanced countries are investing the most, I mean, let's take mine, uh, my original country, I'm a Parisian. Um, and uh, what I see is my country investing a lot in the vaccine and in the high end technologies to, uh, to eventually uh, come up with uh, some, um, some solution either on the vaccine or on the medication. Uh, of course, we produce now more masks. We ever have uh, uh, produced masks, but it doesn't seem to be the way that, um, that the policy is going. We are, we tend to invest in innovation, in, in high technology, high-end new technologies, even in the medical area where we might have a comparative advantage, then to produce more, uh, more masks where there is obviously demand, but we're of course importing probably 99% of our needs right now. Okay, that, that, that's interesting. And, and Shannon, actually, if I can come to you, I mean, that does raise the question, doesn't it, as to where this leads trade conflicts, because you would expect you know, that uh, at the moment we are seeing during the COVID crisis, a lot of trade nationalism, if I can, if I can put it that way. Uh, and that, that therefore might make it harder to resolve trade conflicts and to have a positive way forward because countries have become more inward looking. Absolutely. I mean, um, I don't have much to say about that in particular, but I would, I would say that, you know, if often we get asked what's going to be um, more detrimental to trade? Is it going to be COVID-19 or is it going to be um, growing nationalism and protectionism? And I think the, the, the short answer to that is that you can trade around a pandemic, but you can't necessarily trade around increased tariffs. Um, and I think it kind of plays into conversations that we're having, having with um, companies that trade around the world and I had a conversation with a big international carrier just a couple of weeks ago who said that it's a complete you know, nightmare having to deal with these constantly um, changing uh, regulations, directives, et cetera. Um, staying on top of that is, is, is massively hindering people's business. And I think um, you know, it just plays into this, this degree of uncertainty that companies um, who want to export and who um, you know, who want to get their goods around the world are having to deal with on a daily basis. So what then, uh, if we, we try to cast ahead, what should the international community be doing to boost trade finance uh, going forward? I wonder whether you've got any thoughts on that, Beata. And we heard Jürgen, didn't we, earlier on, explaining what the EBRD is doing, for example. Yes. Um, well, you know, one of the issues that came up during the global financial crisis was the banks were shedding trade finance of their books because they were trying to improve their risk profiles. And, and that's because under Basel regulations, um, trade finance is treated as, as a risky as instrument. And that's in quite a stark contrast with um, empirical evidence. We see there is very little um, the, the default, default rates are very small when it comes to trade finance, simply because in most cases you have the collateral, you have goods that as a, a bank you can, you can seize 
um, as, as part of your compensation. So, you know, perhaps there is time to, to think about this and to revisit this issue. I remember that Pascal Lamy was, was quite uh, vocal about that issue as well. Now, the other thing that we can do, and here I want to echo what, what Shannon was saying, uh, not just about trade finance, but about trade. You know, we live in the times of enormous uncertainty. Anything we can do to lower uncertainty is good. So we shouldn't be creating more uncertainty by uh, undermining global trading rules, by uh, engaging in trade conflicts. So the more the international community can do to express commitment to free trade, just like the commitment we saw on the part of G20 during the global financial crisis, that would be really good for recovery. Because the last thing we want um, to see is uh, trade barriers being erected as we are entering recovery phase and we need uh, free trade more than ever. And I think here Mark knows um, better than I do, but you know, it is possible uh, to engage in protection using the WTO rules. Now that every country is extending support to its own firms, it would be very easy to make an argument that imports are being subsidized. And once countries are starting to point fingers at one another, it's very easy for the situation to get out of hand. All right, thank you, Beata. Uh, Mark, what can be done to boost access to trade finance? Okay, well, there's two things. Uh, there's an emergency response, which is currently uh, happening. And uh, I would like just to say that the, uh, um, uh, the uh, combination of the different multilateral development banks that have trade finance facilitation programs, the EBRD has been the precursor of it, and then everyone has uh, sort of uh, good lessons of it. Uh, we have seven uh, multilateral organizations in some regional that are intervening. They may, at the present moment, I would say on an annual basis, they may be financing about $50 billion. So, I mean, we're, talk we're coming from about 25 in the previous financial crisis and almost nothing during the Asian financial crisis of 20, of 1999. So it's been a big safety nets, but we are working with also a public credit agency, export credit agency that are providing for guarantees as well. So that's the national level. Um, the, the burn union of the export credit agencies have, have provided uh, for a, a long list of things that are being uh, done internationally, for example, extended uh, periods for payments, uh, which we see also at the national level. And central banks are doing their share by providing the liquidity. One thing, though, to be kept in mind for big banks is that they have a lot to do right now. They have to serve and it weight on their capital. Uh, they have to serve already a lot of domestic needs. And hence, uh, cross-border trade is is maybe less in their focus than, than it is at the times of increasing risk. So that's for the emergency crisis, but the good news is that we do have an international safety net uh, that has been built over the years. And I, I can tell you, we, uh, along with the EBRD and others, have worked hard for this to actually happen by convincing that trade finance mattered for trade. Um, the other thing is more in the long run, and I concur with Beata, there's a lot to be done. I'll give you just two or three uh, um, 
uh, areas of, of thinking. One is to train a lot of banks in doing trade finance. As I said, the center, not the center of gravity, but at least the end of the supply chain is moving to countries where banking sector. So we are talking here about bank development and uh, managing uh, supply chain finance extension. Supply chain finance is easier to do. It's, it's less costly, but you need to, uh, to bring in uh, banks that are smaller into it. And, and it, it takes a little bit of, uh, of time uh, to, to learn to do uh, collateral uh, based finance, uh, then promote the adoption of regulation of proper regulation. For example, a lot of countries do not have um, uh, credit insurance uh, laws uh, for trade or they don't have factoring laws, which prevents these non-bank uh, based uh, sources of trade finance to, uh, to develop in, that, in, that, in those countries. And we've, we're doing a lot with professional association to develop that. Education of players, um, particularly the firms uh, to uh, educate them about presenting good financials, uh, presenting collateral, presenting books, bookkeeping uh, that allow them to actually on the demand side to, uh, to get their projects to, to be accepted one in half, uh, one in two uh, demand for uh, in the developing countries are rejected um, and very often for good reasons. Uh, and again, as I'm trying to do every day, strengthening the, the trade finance uh, safety net internationally uh, between MDBs, central banks, ECAs, and other players, and talking to the financial regulators to let them understand that trade finance is high volume, low risk. And I want to emphasize this again, the uh, rate of delinquency on trade credit internationally is 0.2%. In a period of crisis, it may go up to 0.5%, but we are talking a fraction of what it is on domestic market in terms of delinquency of business loans, three to 5% in developed countries in the domestic market. So trade finance is highly collateralized, low risk. Of course, the perception of risk, and this is what we have to deal with in crisis, the gap between the actual level of risk, which remained low, but increases a bit, but the perception of risk, because it's far, because uh, you expect the money not to come back because the firms you, you don't know that are on the other side of the planet, that gap between the, the risk and the perception of risk increases, which uh, ends up creating that kind of um, high risk aversion that we were talking about during periods of crisis. Hence, the need, the need to fill that market failure. Um, and then we need, because with, with the industry 10 years ago and with Pascal Lamy, we decided to ask for the industry to collect the data about the bank losses over trade finance. So we have now a huge registry, which is public. The ICC is publishing that. So we encourage bankers to read it and read it again and to look at periods of crisis and periods of normalcy. And then they would realize that the period of crisis actually yield much less losses than they might think. So keep your credit lines open during periods of crisis. They're good figures. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. Shannon, I can see you itching to come in there. Thanks, Jonathan. I guess um, I just wanted to make a point, a follow-up point on what Mark was saying in that, in that we have seen the, you know, this community of financiers coming together. So there have been fantastic trade finance support packages rolled out over the course of the crisis. Um, from commercial banks, from development banks, from commercial banks working with development banks, export credit agencies, et cetera. 
One of them that I just want to mention very briefly um, was the coming together of um, six of the world development banks, including the EBRD, as well as the World Trade Organization. So they assembled together in a way um, that was described by somebody at the Asian Development Banks as a sort of the Avengers of trade, which <laughs> I think is very cool, um, to address the shortages of um, trade finance around the world. Um, so, I mean, you know, it's, it's essentially, it's so important what they have been doing. And, and quite interesting about these guys coming together that it marked the first time, if I'm correct, that uh, multilateral um, development banks had lined up together in this way to support um, trade finance markets. So I think that's very cool. And then the other thing that I just wanted to point out, so you asked about sort of what um, the community can be doing and what institutions can be doing, and Mark touched on a few important points. And I just wanted to bring up um, a few things that I had seen on this ICC report, which I think were really interesting. So. The ICC has identified a series of what it calls um, proactive interventions to sort of prime um, the trade finance uh, market in anticipation of this demand returning. So I'll just touch on a couple of those. Um, so in the first instance, this goes back to what I was saying at the start, it's asked policymakers to enact emergency reforms to allow trade transactions to be conducted digitally, so not having to rely on that paper. Um, which is which is really important. It's also asked um, for changes in the regulatory treatment of trade finance. So for a long time, banks have been talking um, and for, uh, have been calling for trade finance to be treated differently um, to riskier assets from a capital requirement perspective. And so the ICC is making a few recommendations for adjusting um, risk calculations for key trade products. Um, another recommendation centers around getting more liquidity into the market to free up banks' balance sheets so that they can lend more to exporters. Um, so we know for the last few years that there have been a number of big global banks that have been packing, packaging together um, trade finance assets um, for investors through securitizations. And so what the ICC is asking is for governments and for central banks to really um, step in with large-scale purchases of these um, trade assets. And then um, a final sort of point from the ICC in terms of one of the other recommendations was they called for um, state-backed export credit agencies, so ECAs, um, to do more to provide adequate support for short-term trade finance um, transactions, whereas we know that this is, you know, they generally um, support long-term trade finance transactions. And so um, the ICC says that if these measures are all met, that um, they could be sufficiently boosted, um, uh, trade finance capacity could be sufficiently boosted to bring it back to um, pre-pandemic uh, levels over the next sort of 18 months. Um, back to you, Jonathan. Okay, thank you very much. I mean, we're all going off to put our superheroes uh, costumes on, of course, after hearing we're the Avengers of global trade. Uh, Shannon, thank you. Um, let's turn to some questions that are coming in. So we've got quite a few. Um, there's one uh, here. The WTO has written uh, about trade finance in periods of crisis. That was in 2012, apparently, uh, Mark Obron. Uh, how does the current crisis differ from the financial crisis? What are the similarities and differences, Mark? So, obviously, well, there was a first demand. There was a first demand shock uh, on the uh, uh, on on the trade side. So it was not coming. It was not a supply shock on the on the financial side. 
Um, then compounded by, uh, as, as we heard, uh, by operational issues to get uh, not only the merchandise moving, but getting the documents that are underlying the, uh, trans uh, the financial transaction to actually being issued and actually collected by the different providers. Uh, let's not forget that a lot of uh, the trade finance is collateralized by the merchandise. So in order to, to collateralize it, you need to have documents from customs, shipments, and all of that. That's why we call, we talk about all these papers. Um, and, and so that's, um, that's one, that was the first phase. The second phase, we are in a recovery of trade, some recovery of trade, and we have some recovery of trade finance, but we hear that key players, and I can give you two or three very big banks that have decided no longer to do, um, uh, for example, commodity finance, uh, one was doing 20 billion a year and they're not going to do it next year. Um, another one was doing 50 billion. So we are talking big tickets. And so we, we are going into the third phase where we would have a, an increased demand for trade with less, I mean, all things being equal, less in principle uh, supply that is minus those institutions that have withdrawn supply in principle of, supply of, uh, of trade finance. Now, are there going to be new players uh, that will be happy to come in and take market share? We don't know that yet, but we should be prepared for the third phase, which is always the most delicate, which is when is the market, the trade finance market, when the capacity is going, is going to return, while at the same time, the losses have been deferred, which is with all these um, packages of supports to, uh, uh, to avoid a certain uh, transaction from actually um, um, sh showing losses. Uh, these losses might be a little bit deferred. That's what the credit insurers are saying. So there will be a complicated third stage. On the face of it, BR, so that sounds pretty worrying, actually, when you hear finances withdrawing from the market in these key areas. So one thing that is very visible in the data from the time of the global financial crisis is that intra-firm trade was much more resilient than arm's length trade. Right? Because if you are trading uh, intra-firm between subsidiaries of the same company, there is no risk. Um, and this means that you know, if governments want to help their national firms, you know, not their champions, not the giants, but kind of high quality firms that are not multinationals, they need to worry about uh, provision of trade credit. What you also um, see in the data is that if an exporter wants to be more competitive in a tough market, being able to extend trade credit to the importer um, is something that gives you an advantage. And, and you, know, you can see it very clearly after the multi-fiber arrangement unleashed Asian exports of clothing and textile to the European Union. You know, from the perspective of Turkish exporters to the EU, that was a huge shock to the level of competition. And what you see in the data is that they reacted in two ways. They dropped prices and they extended trade credit to the buyers. And the firms that were able to extend trade credit, they had to drop prices by less. 
So this is one way of supporting national firms. All right, thank you. By the way, though, that question we were responding to came from Yuko Iratani on Zoom. We've had a question on Facebook from Yusepti. What are your opinions on the pandemic's repercussions on trade finance in Africa? Mark, do you have a view on that? Uh, yes, that was the first, uh, the first uh, region to be hit uh, where there was withdrawal of liquidity. In, uh, you know, as, I, as we said, actually, uh, during uh, the discussion, um, this uh, pandemic uh, and the shortages that comes with it, with the highest risk perception, is coming on top of an existing structural um, uh, gap uh, in provision. And that uh, gap as a share of the market is the highest in the least developed countries. So in Africa, for example, the estimates by the African Development Bank is that the shortage is about in value about the third of the market itself. Um, so we have seen, of course, uh, a shutdown on, on uh, credit lines and the all <laughs> uh, the uh, development banks that, that could be present, though that uh, I will mention them because I think they are doing a fantastic yeah. job. Uh, the IFC, the AfriXim Bank, the uh, African Development Banks have been stepping up uh, and actually taking uh, a share in the deals, in the trade finance deal. I give you one example. Uh, it takes for the exports uh, by Burkina Faso of its cotton, which is about eight, uh, one deal of $800 million a year on which the balance of payments of Burkina Faso counts. And that provides uh, Burkina Faso, the foreign exchange, to pay for the imports of COVID-related equipment. Uh, now you have, at least in this tour de table, now that you no longer have BNP Paribas and Société Générale, you need to have uh, the, uh, the multilaterals to be there to provide for the financing for this pre-export uh, shipment financing and for also bringing in the COVID uh, equipment, including the ambulances, uh, then you have the multilaterals that are there, I can tell you. Shannon, what are you picking up about Africa? Yeah, as a, as a South African, um, I, was, I was there when, you know, at the outbreak of, of the pandemic, uh, made my way back to the UK. Um, it's, it's unfortunate for Africa, um, is my personal response, um, because the pandemic happened at the time of the you know, we were going to see the rolling out of the African continental free trade area, which has now been pushed back to the start of next year, if I'm not mistaken. Um, however, the, you know, we did a um, exclusive Q&A with the um, new Secretary General of the African Continental FTA, um, who is incredibly positive about what it's going to do for the continent. And I think that's potentially where the silver linings lie. Um, I would agree with Mark, you know, banks like Afrix and Bank are doing fantastic things um, on the continent. And, um, you know, as their, um, as their head, uh, Dr. Rama, Professor Rama, um, tells us uh, a lot of the time, sometimes the biggest issue with doing, conducting trade in Africa is also the lack of trade information. So they're doing um, all sorts of initiatives to try and make people aware of the goods that are, um, available in the neighboring markets because African countries tend to, um, you know, would rather tend to export and import from the European market as opposed, for, as opposed to doing that same trade with their neighboring countries. And that's where um, a potential um, sort of weak point lies, but, but they are doing things to, to, to rectify that. 
Thank you, Shannon. Uh, we've had a question from Alan Fitzsimons, who's watching on Zoom. Uh, one on digitalization. COVID has been a catalyst for digitalization. Uh, so between uh, ICC, WTO, local governments, how far away are we from a global trade framework? So, uh, Mark. Uh, very far. <laughs> and on, that's one thing on which we have very little jurisdiction. No, it's true that uh, the, uh, the market has been very creative, but uh, for example, there are major uh, uh, legislative uh, um, hurdles to, for example, the acceptance of e-signatures on, on a deal, and it has to have the agreement by all the parties to, to get there, and that's what they manage in, in, in some tra transactions during the crisis. So it's a fairly unresolved matter. Um, and uh, what I wanted to emphasize is that it's not the same problem whether you are in Bangladesh or whether you are in the European Union, where you do have a certain, let's say, on business laws, a certain level of harmonization, or at least inter-country confidence and intercompany confidence. Um, in some countries, uh, uh, like India, like Bangladesh, actually having paper is a way to control against fraud because the papers are emanating from the customs emanating from the shipping uh, authorities so you know where the um, uh, when and where uh, the merchandise has been uh, delivered you know that he's gone through customs and then the law actually provides for these documents to exist for the payments for the payments by the central banks to be authorized. So paper remains in those countries which do not have yet, which are even the administrative uh, authorities do not use electronics yet, is a guarantee. And I can tell you that in some of them, unless there is an, a workable alternative system, you will not yet have uh, a change. Uh, so just just beware of that. And these are the countries where trade is growing the fastest. Okay, look, let's try and pull together some of the strands of all the things we've been talking about. I think we're, we need to conclude and let, let's have some concluding thoughts. What do you think are the next steps then for making trade and trade finance more resilient against such global shocks? I mean, global shocks are not going away. We've had them in perhaps quicker succession than we, we might have hoped. Um, so, so how do you build the resilience now that's required? Beata. I wonder, and this is my speculation, whether digitalization is going to make it easier for banks to comply with know your customer regulation. Because then you can more easily create databases of trading partners, cross-check entities. And if that's the case, that lowers the uh, due diligence costs of you know, maintaining corresponding banking relationships, and that could potentially bring the supply of trade finance back to the places where these relationships have been um, disappearing. Mark, a more resilient world, how do we do it? Um, yes, I agree uh, to a large extent what uh, Beata and also Shannon have been saying. I mean, I, again, I am not a, a skeptic about uh, electronic uh, uh, trade finance. It will come up um, and actually all banks are investing into it and it will help indeed with big data for the uh, compliance challenge, which uh, uh, 
lot of headways and investment have already uh, allowed for uh, adoption of these legislation and enactment of these legislation. Um, but but as I see the um, end of the market going faster than the uh, I mean, the low end of the market going faster than the high end of the market, that, that will take a time. Uh, the other thing is just in improving the uh, other market infrastructure, which is the legislation allowing uh, a, a wide span of trade finance techniques and, uh, and those particularly uh, enabling uh, supply chain finance. Uh, for banks to be better regulated, for, for companies to have better books. All of these uh, create some good conditions uh, for trade finance to actually exist. Uh, so I think that we just need to do the, continue to do the groundwork uh, that, that is being underway and then people gain experience. And it, so it is really a matter of the, I mean, it's counterintuitive. Very often we think that the financial system actually is faster than the, uh, 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 than the real economy to adapt. In many developing countries, this is the other way around. We have to have the financial system catch up on their capacity to uh, support uh, the new uh, activities of, of the, uh, and international activities of, of the private sector, the producing and exporting private sector. Thank you, Mark. And Shannon, what are you seeing? What are you hearing about the desire to make a more resilient future? Yeah. Um, I have a slightly different take on this um, question, so I'm so glad that you raised it. It's not something that we've talked about today at all, but mm. I think um, what's super essential to the future of the industry is the people. Um, uh, there's a looming trade finance generational and talent and skills gap. Um, you know, people rise up organically within trade finance. It's a fantastic place to work. They don't leave. Um, and I think that companies, you know, institutions are not doing enough um, to increase the proportion and visibility of young talent in the business, which is ultimately going to be driving its future growth, right? Um, so, you know, we need to be attracting the best talent. We need to be attracting the, the brightest minds. Um, and so we need to really think about how we're going to do that because the rate at which the industry is evolving, thanks to increased efforts to digitalize and calls to be more inclusive, which is something that's very important to GTR, is gonna necessitate that this, you know, this new wave, wave of um, trade financiers makes their way to the top sooner rather than later. Okay, that is an interesting thought. So if you're a young professional out there interested in a career in trade finance, listen up, there's clearly uh, lots of opportunity there to be innovative. Uh, big thank you very much indeed to Shannon Manders, to Mark Obwin, uh, to Beati Yavorczyk, of course, who is the EBRD's chief economist. Thank you to all of you for watching. An awful lot to think about in that discussion. I'm sure we'll be back with trade matters again. You know, it is uh, crucial to the recovery. Uh, this episode is part of our coronavirus special series. We're going to be posting a podcast of today's session later. You can download it on iTunes. Reviewing and rating it, of course, uh, helps others to find it. So we're very keen on you doing that. Please do that. Uh, I've been Jonathan Charles. Hope I continue to be Jonathan Charles, by the way. Uh, looking forward to our next discussion. Uh, see you next time. Goodbye. You are listening to Coronavirus Special, brought to you by EBRD.